Section 30 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 30, Chapter 16. Part three. While the war was carried on in this ruinous manner, the negotiations for peace were never interrupted. But as the king still insisted on the full execution of the treaty which he had made with the prisoner at London, and which was strenuously rejected by the Dauphin, there appeared no likelihood of an accommodation. The Earl, now Duke of Lancaster, for this title was introduced into England during the present reign, endeavoured to soften the rigour of these terms, and to finish the war on more equal and reasonable conditions. He insisted with Edward that notwithstanding his great and surprising successes, the object of the war, if such were to be esteemed the acquisition of the crown of France, was not become any nearer than at the commencement of it, or rather was set at a greater distance by those very victories and advantages which seemed to lead to it. That his claim of succession had not from the first procured him one partisan in the kingdom, and the continuance of these destructive hostilities had united every Frenchman in the most implacable animosity against him, that though intestine faction had crept into the government of France, it was abating every moment, and no party, even during the greatest heat of the contest, when subjection under a foreign enemy usually appears preferable to the dominion of fellow-citizens, had ever adopted the pretensions of the King of England. That the King of Navarre himself, who alone was allied with the English, instead of being a cordial friend, was Edward's most dangerous rival, and in the opinion of his partisans possessed a much preferable title to the crown of France. That the prolongation of the war, however it might enrich the English soldiers, was ruinous to the king himself, who bore all the charges of the armament without reaping any solid or durable advantage from it that if the present disorders of France continued, that kingdom would soon be reduced to such a state of desolation that it would afford no spoils to its ravagers. If it could establish a more steady government, it might turn the chance of war in its favour, and by its superior force and advantages be able to repel the present victors. That the Dauphin, even during his greatest distresses, had yet conducted himself with so much prudence as to prevent the English from acquiring one foot of land in the kingdom, and it were better for the king to accept by a peace what he had in vain attempted to acquire by hostilities, which, however hitherto successful, had been extremely expensive and might prove very dangerous, and that Edward, having acquired so much glory by his arms, 
the praise of moderation was the only honour to which he could now aspire an honour so much the greater as it was durable was united with that of prudence and might be attended with the most real advantages these reasons induced edward to accept of more moderate terms of peace and it is probable that in order to palliate this change of resolution he ascribed it to a vow made during a dreadful tempest which attacked his army on their march and which ancient historians represent as the cause of this sudden accommodation the conferences between the english and french commissioners were carried on during a few days at bretigny in the chartrain and the peace was at last concluded on the following conditions it was stipulated that king john should be restored to his liberty and should pay as his ransom three millions of crowns of gold about one million five hundred thousand pounds of our present money which was to be discharged at different payments that edward should forever renounce all claim to the crown of france and to the provinces of normandy maine touraine and anjou possessed by his ancestors and should receive in exchange the provinces of poictou xantange la genois perigord the limousin quercy roverge langamois and other districts in that quarter together with calais guinée montreuil and the county of pontou on the other side of france that the full sovereignty of all these provinces as well as that of guyenne should be vested in the crown of england and that france should renounce all title to feudal jurisdiction homage or appeal from them that the king of navarre should be restored to all his honours and possessions that edward should renounce his confederacy with the flemings john his connections with the scots that the disputes concerning the succession of brittany between the families of blois and mountford should be decided by arbiters appointed by the two kings and if the competitors refused to submit to the award the dispute should no longer be a ground of war between the kingdoms and that forty hostages such as should be agreed on should be sent to england as a security for the execution of all these conditions in consequence of this treaty the king of france was brought over to calais whither edward also soon after repaired and there both princes solemnly ratified the treaty john was sent to boulogne the king accompanied him a mile on his journey and the two monarchs parted with many professions probably cordial and sincere of mutual amity the good disposition of john made him fully sensible of the generous treatment which he had received in england and obliterated all memory of the ascendant gained over him by his rival there seldom has been a treaty of so great importance so faithfully executed by both parties edward had scarcely from the beginning entertained any hopes of acquiring the crown of france
by restoring John to his liberty, and making peace at a juncture so favourable to his arms, he had now plainly renounced all pretensions of this nature. He had sold at a very high price that chimerical claim, and had at present no other interest than to retain those acquisitions which he had made with such singular prudence and good fortune. John, on the other hand, though the terms were severe, possessed such fidelity and honour that he was determined at all hazards to execute them, and to use every expedient for satisfying a monarch who had indeed been his greatest political enemy, but had treated him personally with singular humanity and regard. But notwithstanding his endeavours, there occurred many difficulties in fulfilling his purpose, chiefly from the extreme reluctance which many towns and vassals in the neighbourhood of Guyenne expressed against submitting to the English dominion, and John, in order to adjust these differences, took a resolution of coming over himself to England. His council endeavoured to dissuade him from this rash design, and probably would have been pleased to see him employ more chicanes for eluding the execution of so disadvantageous a treaty. But John replied to them that though good faith were banished from the rest of the earth, she ought still to retain her habitation in the breasts of princes. Some historians would detract from the merit of this honourable conduct by representing John as enamoured of an English lady, to whom he was glad on this pretence to pay a visit. But besides that this surmise is not founded on any good authority, it appears somewhat unlikely on account of the advanced age of that prince, who was now in his fifty-sixth year. He was lodged in the Savoy, the palace where he had resided during his captivity, and where he soon after sickened and died. Nothing can be a stronger proof of the great dominion of fortune over men than the calamities which pursued a monarch of such eminent valour, goodness, and honour, and which he incurred merely by reason of some slight imprudences which, in other situations would have been of no importance. But though his reign and that of his father proved extremely unfortunate to their kingdom, the French crown acquired, during their time, very considerable accessions, those of Dauphiny and Burgundy. This latter province, however, John had the imprudence again to dismember by bestowing it upon Philip, his fourth son, the object of his most tender affections, a deed which was afterwards the source of many calamities to the kingdom. John was succeeded in the throne by Charles the Dauphin, a prince educated in the school of adversity, and well qualified by his consummate prudence and experience to repair all the losses which the kingdom had sustained from the errors of his two predecessors. Contrary to the practice of all the great princes of those times, which held nothing in estimation but military courage, he seems to have fixed it as a maxim never to appear at the head of his armies, 
and he was the first king in Europe that showed the advantage of policy, foresight, and judgment, above a rash and precipitate valor. The events of his reign, compared with those of the preceding, are a proof how little reason kingdoms have to value themselves on their victories, or to be humbled by their defeats, which in reality ought to be ascribed chiefly to the good or bad conduct of their rulers, and are of little moment towards determining national characters and manners. Before Charles could think of counterbalancing so great a power as England, it was necessary for him to remedy the many disorders to which his own kingdom was exposed. He turned his arms against the King of Navarre, the great disturber of France during that age. He defeated this prince by the conduct of Bertrand du Guesclin, a gentleman of Brittany, one of the most accomplished characters of the age, whom he had the discernment to choose as the instrument of all his victories, and he obliged his enemy to accept of moderate terms of peace. Du Guesclin was less fortunate in the wars of Brittany, which still continued, notwithstanding the mediation of France and England. He was defeated and taken prisoner at Auray by Chandos. Charles of Blois was there slain, and the young Count of Mountfort soon after got entire possession of that duchy. But the prudence of Charles broke the force of this blow, he submitted to the decision of fortune. He acknowledged the title of Mountfort, though a zealous partisan of Britain, and received the proffered homage for his dominions. But the chief obstacle which the French king met with in the settlement of the state proceeded from obscure enemies, whom their crimes alone rendered eminent, and their number dangerous. On the conclusion of the Treaty of Bretigny, the many military adventurers who had followed the standard of Edward, being dispersed into the several provinces, and possessed of strongholds, refused to lay down their arms, or relinquish a course of life to which they were now accustomed, and by which alone they could gain a subsistence. They associated themselves with the banditti, who were already inured to the habits of rapine and violence, and under the name of the companies and companions became a terror to all the peaceable inhabitants. Some English and Gascon gentlemen of character, particularly Sir Matthew Gournay, Sir Hugh Calverley, the Chevalier Vert, and others, were not ashamed to take the command of these ruffians, whose numbers amounted on the whole to near forty thousand, and who bore the appearance of regular armies rather than bands of robbers. These leaders fought pitched battles with the troops of France, and gained victories, in one of which Jacques de Bourbon, a prince of the blood, was slain, and they proceeded to such a height that they wanted little but regular establishments to become princes, and thereby sanctify, by the maxims of the world, their infamous profession. The greater spoil they committed on the country, 
the more easy they found it to recruit their number all those who were reduced to misery and despair flocked to their standard the evil was every day increasing and though the pope declared them excommunicated these military plunderers however deeply affected with the sentence to which they paid a much greater regard than to any principles of morality could not be induced by it to betake themselves to peaceable or lawful professions as charles was not able by power to redress so enormous a grievance he was led by necessity and by the turn of his character to correct it by policy and to contrive some method of discharging into foreign countries this dangerous and intestine evil peter king of castile stigmatized by his contemporaries and by posterity with the epithet of cruel had filled with blood and murder his kingdom and his own family and having incurred the universal hatred of his subjects he kept from present terror alone an anxious and precarious possession of the throne his nobles fell every day the victims of his severity he put to death several of his natural brothers from groundless jealousy each murder by multiplying his enemies became the occasion of fresh barbarities and as he was not destitute of talents his neighbours no less than his own subjects were alarmed at the progress of his violence and injustice the ferocity of his temper instead of being softened by his strong propensity to love was rather inflamed by that passion and took thence new occasion to exert itself instigated by mary de padilla who had acquired the ascendant over him he threw into prison blanche de bourbon his wife bister to the queen of france and soon after made way by poison for the espousing of his mistress henry count of transtamer his natural brother seeing the fate of every one who had become obnoxious to this tyrant took arms against him but being foiled in the attempt he sought for refuge in france where he found the minds of men extremely inflamed against peter on account of his murder of the french princess he asked permission of charles to enlist the companies in his service and to lead them into castile where from the concurrence of his own friends and the enemies of his brother he had the prospect of certain and immediate success the french king charmed with the project employed du gasquelin in negotiating with the leaders of these banditti the treaty was soon concluded the high character of honour which that general possessed made every one trust to his promises though the intended expedition was kept a secret the companies implicitly enlisted under his standard and they required no other condition before their engagement than an assurance they were not to be led against the prince of wales in guyenne but that prince was so little averse to the enterprise that he allowed some gentlemen of his retinue to enter into the service under du gasquelin du gasquelin having completed his levies led the army first to avignon 
where the pope then resided and demanded sword in hand and absolution for his soldiers and the sum of two hundred thousand livres the first was readily promised him some more difficulty was made with regard to the second i believe that my fellows replied du gasquelin may make a shift to do without your absolution but the money is absolutely necessary the pope then extorted from the inhabitants in the city and neighbourhood the sum of a hundred thousand livres and offered it to du gasquelin it is not my purpose cried that generous warrior to oppress the innocent people the pope and his cardinals themselves can well spare me that sum from their own coffers this money i insist must be restored to the owners and should they be defrauded of it i shall myself return from the other side of the pyrenees and oblige you to make them restitution the pope found the necessity of submitting and paid him from his treasury the sum demanded the army hallowed by the blessings and enriched by the spoils of the church proceeded on their expedition these experienced and hardy soldiers conducted by so able a general easily prevailed over the king of castile whose subjects instead of supporting their oppressor were ready to join the enemy against him peter fled from his dominions took shelter in guyenne and craved the protection of the prince of wales whom his father had invested with the sovereignty of these conquered provinces by the title of the principality of aquitaine the prince seemed now to have entirely changed his sentiments with regard to the spanish transactions whether that was moved by the generosity of supporting a distressed prince and thought as is but too usual among sovereigns that the rights of the people were a matter of much less consideration or dreaded the acquisition of so powerful a confederate to france as the new king of castile or what is most probable was impatient of rest and ease and sought only an opportunity for exerting his military talents by which he had already acquired so much renown he promised his assistance to the dethroned monarch and having obtained the consent of his father he levied a great army and set out upon his enterprise he was accompanied by his younger brother john of gaunt created duke of lancaster in the room of the good prince of that name who had died without any male issue and whose daughter he had espoused Chandos, also who bore among the english the same character which du gasquelin had acquired among the french commanded under him in this expedition the first blow which the prince of wales gave to henry of Transtamer was the recalling of all the companies from his service and so much reverence did they bear to the name of edward that great numbers of them immediately withdrew from spain and enlisted under his banners henry however beloved by his new subjects and supported by the king of aragon and others of his neighbours was able to meet the enemy with an army of one hundred thousand men forces three times more numerous than those which were commanded by edward du gasquelin 
and all his experienced officers advised him to delay any decisive action, to cut off the Prince of Wales's provisions, and to avoid every engagement with a general, whose enterprises had hitherto been always conducted with prudence, and crowned with success. Henry trusted too much to his numbers, and ventured to encounter the English prince at Najara. Historians of that age are commonly very copious in describing the shock of armies in battle. The valour of the combatants, the slaughter and various successes of the day. But though small encounters in those times were often well disputed, military discipline was always too imperfect to preserve order in great armies, and such actions deserve more the name of routs than of battles. Henry was chased off the field with the loss of above twenty thousand men. There perished only four knights and forty private men on the side of the English. Peter, who so well merited the infamous epithet which he bore, purposed to murder all his prisoners in cold blood, but was restrained from this barbarity by the remonstrance of the Prince of Wales. All Castile submitted to the victor, Peter was restored to the throne, and Edward finished his perilous enterprise with his usual glory but he had soon reason to repent his connections with a man like peter abandoned to all sense of virtue and honour the ungrateful tyrant refused the stipulated pay to the english forces and edward finding his soldiers daily perish by sickness and even his own health impaired by the climate was obliged without receiving any satisfaction on this head to return to guyenne End of section 30, chapter 16, part 3.